Amen. You can be seated. Again, welcome for those of you joining us online. I am uh, Pastor Pat, and I was chosen today to do the prayer and the reading and the sermon. So it's a tough job. No, but we, uh, we typically read from the New Testament if we're preaching from the Old Testament. And if we're preaching from the Old Testament, we read a passage from the New. So since we are in the book of Nehemiah today, <clears throat> we're going to read a passage from the New Testament. And again, they always have something connected. Okay, so what I'm going to say to you here or what the Word of God is going to say to you here, stick it in the back of your mind. And when it comes up, out, up in the sermon, you can go, ah, there it is. And you'll get a special prize uh, on, your, on your way out, if you remember that and connect it. So here it is. It's Romans <clears throat> chapter 12. Uh, and this is verses uh, 19 through 21. It says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. It's tempting just to stay right with that verse, right? Just preach on that today. Uh, With that said, um, we can now uh, dismiss our king's kids. So if you're uh, 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 like this tall or shorter... You can follow Rebecca, and oh, you have to be a certain age, too. And um, then we also have our Spanish translation today by Miss Elvira, so if you'd like to tune in to Spanish and hear the sermon translated live in Spanish, you can get that from our website, um, or you can scan uh, the, the QR code in the back. So now we're going to jump into our text today, which is Nehemiah chapter 4, the verses 1 through 8. And last week we covered all of chapter 3, which was a, which was pretty, it's a big chunk of scripture. But what it was, it was everybody joining together, doing the work that God had called them to do. And so we talked last week about as we go out and build for the kingdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, in our own lives, Whatever the calling that God has given us, and this isn't necessarily the spectacular calling, you know, I call, you know, we're not all called to be Jeremiah the prophet, you know, we're not all called to be Paul the apostle. Some of us, uh, as we talked about last week, are the, are, are the feet, the fingers, the toes, the ears. Some of us happen to have big mouths, so we're, we're, we're used in that way. We like to talk. Okay, and so it was about being unified as a church wholesale, but also as a local church, we need to be unified and serving and moving forward to build for the kingdom. And so Nehemiah, in his, uh, where he's at right now is a pretty scary place because he traveled all the way from Persia because the uh, Jewish people were in exile and he got permission from King Artaxerxes, who was the ruler of the world, to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so he knew it was going to be a monumental task. He didn't know what he was going to see when he got there. But of course, where God guides, God provides. So God guided Nehemiah. He was obedient. And then God provided everything Nehemiah needed 
It's a neat concept, right? We, we, God guides us, and at the same time, he gives us everything we need to do it. <clears throat> the problem with us is we want everything we need to do it ahead of time, and we want to connect all the dots. That's not how God works, right? He says, take one step, and then I'll let you know. That one step can be a day. That one step can be 10 years. That one step can be an instant. Who knows what it is? It's God's timing. But we have to trust in him. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. Now, today, chapter four starts with the villain, right? Every good story has a villain. Now, we talked about these guys. They made a quick appearance in chapter two, Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab. And we said, guess what? We're going to see a lot of these guys later. And so now we're starting to see the opponent or the enemy I guess you could say, start to make an inroad psychologically to Nehemiah. So we're going to take the first eight verses of chapter four, and we're going to read that, and then we are going to talk about these opponents. And so chapter four, verses one, it should be up on your screen. Now it came about that when Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry And mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Again, the wall. Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? Because remember, Jerusalem is in shambles still, the wall anyway. Now, verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And now Nehemiah's response, verse 4. Hear, O God. Oh, let me correct that. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let, their, and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I love that. Verse 7, now when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, <clears throat> who was Geshem really, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance of it. So here we see the story conflict start to escalate. We see the mocking, we see the despising, and now at the end of the passage, we see the threat of actual physical confrontation. Now, most of us here know the concept of what an opponent is. Okay, we, if you've ever competed in sports against someone or a contest, a game, or even had an argument with a rival or an adversary, you understand the concept of having an opponent. And like we said, this is, a very, this is in all stories, in every film we see, right? We, we see the opponent there, but usually they're called the antagonist. And so <clears throat> the antagonist tries to defeat 
or to stop or to overcome or foil the goal of the protagonist, which is usually the hero or the main character of the story. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes they're bad guys. It doesn't always have to be the hero's a good guy and the antagonist is a bad guy. They can both be good, but they're just against each other trying to you know, win the prize. We, we see it in boxing, right? Two people in the ring, they both want the victory. But you see, the one thing that all protagonists and antagonists have in common is that they want the very same thing as the other. They're both trying to do the same thing. Like the two boxers, they both want the victory. A group of teachers trying to win teacher of the year. They're not all against each other, hating each other, right? They're not enemies, they're opponents. They're trying to win the rewards. Same with a salesperson trying to get the highest sales. They want the bonus and so forth and so on. But once an opponent becomes unethical in their approach, that's when they can become enemies. So if your opponent in a boxing ring, you know, remember when Mike Tyson bit, well, some of you probably don't remember that, he bit Evander Holyfield's ear. So they were opponents, but now they became enemies because of that little chunk that he took out of his ear. And so we, when the desire to defeat or stop someone becomes immoral or in, uh, in their intent or their action, it then will have a, rival, a rivalry and they can be called an enemy. So what's this have to do with Nehemiah? Obviously, where we're going here is with Sambalot and Tobiah who are trying to stop him. So Nehemiah, he was on this mission. He was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He not only had opponents, but these guys now shifted over and became his enemies. These guys were carrying on business in and around Jerusalem. They were living under King Artaxerxes. Everything was great. They had influence. They were civil leaders. And then Nehemiah comes to town and starts saying, I'm going to rebuild this city. And so they did not want to have any of that. <clears throat> not knowing or realizing these people were taking a stand against God himself. Because again, where God guides, God is going to provide. You're not going to foil God's plans. They wanted what God and Nehemiah wanted. They were opponents, now enemies, wanting the same goal, control over Jerusalem. <clears throat> now, if Israel rebuilds and regroups, that would not be in their favor. So we're going to see this rivalry, uh, rivalry escalate through Nehemiah. However, in our passage today, this is where they go on the offensive. They begin to psychologically attack Nehemiah. Criticism, insults, mocking for what they were trying to do for God. Now, again, try to keep this tightly in its context, this whole message in this whole passage, because this is not just a general message about let's love our enemies or we're all going to have opposition. This is a very specific context of a man being called by God to do a very specific work by God and people trying to stop him from doing it. So this is a, a very specific, specific context. And so this begs the question, when we think of the application, how do you handle this in your life? Or how would you handle it in your life? Mocking from your enemies. How about mocking and jeering for your desire to want to serve God in your life? even from those that you may consider friends or family. 
I believe this passage will give us a good blueprint on how to deal with that. Really, and very specifically, though, how we deal with it as we're moving forward to serve God in where he has called us to go and what he has called us to do. So let's take a first look here at his enemies. Who were they? Well, they were, it's not just three or four guys here. If you look at who these guys are, we see Sambalot, who was the, one of the civil leaders of Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem. And then you have Geshem the Arab, who is just south of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, yeah, uh, he's under the influence, uh, the Arabs are under the influence of, of Geshem, if I said that wrong. The Ammonites are on the east, the Ashdodites on the west, which is a major Philistine city on the sea there. So again, what we're seeing here is Jerusalem being surrounded by their enemies, right? And so this isn't just three guys that are just mocking and jeering. These are a lot of people that Nehemiah is like, what is going to happen here? I am out of my zone, comfort zone. I'm away from my land. I never grew up in Jerusalem. I grew up in Persia. Now I'm here. What did I get myself into? And so this is, uh, you know, all under the king Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah knows that if this gets out, that there's going to be a war, the king is going to pull the plug in a second on his project. So that's who we're dealing with. Now, what were they mocking? If you see here in verse 2, it's a lot more meat. Uh, When you dig in, you peel back the onion a little bit. It says, he spoke in the presence of his brothers and wealthy men. Said, what are these feeble Jews doing? So feeble, they're weak. They're unable to protect themselves. They say, what are they doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? They have no ability to do this. This is one of the things that I say in my life, almost every time that I've stepped out, because I felt the Lord was calling me to do something, one of the main things that people say is, are you sure you're going to be able to do that? Do you have the ability to do that? God is calling you to write a screenplay. You've never written a screenplay before. God is calling you to make a film. You've never, what gives you the right to do that? These are literal things that I heard, and it was very discouraging. You know, God, he's right. (laughs) How am I supposed to do this, right? So they were mocking abilities. I'm sure it happens and it has happened the same thing for, to yourself. You know, maybe, maybe not as exact, but maybe a little bit more subtle. But here we go. Are they gonna, can they offer sacrifices? So this is, a direct, this is a direct reference to their trust in the Lord. So they're mocking their dependence on the Lord as well. It talks about it's going to take, you know, can they finish it a day? I mean, this is a huge thing. They're mocking them for their speed. It's going to take them forever. They start to mock about the materials. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Where are they going to get this? Look at the quality of the work, Tobias says. Even if a little fox jumps on the wall, it's going to be knocked knocked over. And so ultimately, they were attacking Nehemiah at this point and his builders psychologically with their lack of ability, lack of materials, lack of quality of work, probably lack of people as well, too. They were thinking they could wipe them out in a second. And so each of us here is this is going to happen. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us that you will be persecuted. 
And it comes from all different places and all different packages. But we have to be willing to deal with it. Otherwise, we respond wrong and we end up just, we end up negating everything we're trying to show people by following God. We start to sin and we look like the bad guy now when we retaliate wrong. So how do we respond to the mocking of our enemies as we move forward with God's calling? So let's look at Nehemiah's example here. So what does the first thing Nehemiah, what does he do? Number one, in chapter one, if you can remember, the number one thing he does when he hears about Jerusalem and how the people in Jerusalem are suffering, the first thing he does is pray. God gave him a burden. He went right to the Lord, he prayed and he fasted. And again, the first thing he does here in time, in a time of difficulty, in the time of mocking, is not jump in his face and say, yeah, we'll cross that line and see what happens. Nope, he goes, he goes and dives right into prayer. He goes right to the Lord. Now, why wouldn't we do that? We, would, we wouldn't do that because we forget whose project we're on. We're on we think we're on our project in our life. The Bible says your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. We are God's property now. We're to glorify God in our body. We're to do everything we, that he calls us to do, and we're to do it with all of our heart unto his glory, right? We've all heard this. But what happens is, is when, <clears throat> when we get mocked and ridiculed, we try to take things instantly. Our, our knee-jerk reaction in our flesh is to go right back at people. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He goes to God because he realizes, I'm just speculating here, <laughs> thinking about God opening all these doors. He knew I'm on God's time. I'm doing God's plan. They're not just mocking me. They're mocking God. And the ability to be able to do that is a, is a, is a really amazing, stress-free, anxiety-free life. When you could discipline, this isn't something that you're, weak and you're not a real Christian because you can't do this really well, okay? Because I'm preaching to myself as well. It needs practice. It's hard to do this. We have to be spiritually disciplined to go to God first all the time in everything. No matter how big or how small that attack may be, we need to make sure that we're aligned right with the Lord before we retaliate because your flesh will take you in a direction that you will regret. And so you want to make sure that you first go to God. And so he goes to God with prayer. Now notice, he doesn't pray a gushy, you know, fluffy little prayer here. He prays something that's very typical throughout the Old Testament, and that is an imprecatory prayer. Now, an imprecatory prayer invokes judgment on somebody, calamity on this person. Curses upon one's enemy, but only those enemies that are not aligned with God. So we have no right to do an imprecatory prayer against somebody if they're, if they're just insulting you and they're not insulting God. See, imprecatory prayers is because it's almost like we're praying on behalf of God, as if this is what God would say. We see this in the Psalms. I mean, there's probably like, if you want them all, I'll, I'll give them to you. But there's two I, I wrote down here. Psalm 10:15. break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. I'm sorry, ten, yeah, 10:15. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Psalm 79, 12. 
and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached us. No, you, O Lord. Listen to that again. Return to our neighbors sevenfold. Sevenfold is the number of perfection. Seven. In other words, in your perfect uh, justice and retaliation, Lord, return into their bosom sevenfold the reproach which they have reproached you, O Lord. Not me, you, O Lord. Now, Nehemiah was very familiar with Jeremiah the prophet, I'm sure. Jeremiah has a very similar imprecatory prayer, Jeremiah 18.23. Again, Jeremiah was called to go to the Jewish people. He was hated. He was persecuted. He would complain against God, you know. And what does he pray? Yet, he says in 18.23, Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. I love that. Whoever is against you, I don't care if it's the most powerful enemy in all of the world. Whoever is against you, God knows all of their designs, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to plot. That's faith to believe that. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. May they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. And so he is modeling this prayer to them. But notice he's not, it's not exactly what it seems either. He's not just saying, Lord, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Listen, verse four, he says, hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. What is he referring to? Israel, right? He's, refer- he's like saying, let them go through what we just went through. Let them understand how we feel here. Because we, Israel, this is what he said, we were given up for plunder. And we were, putting it, were put in a land of captivity. Let them experience that. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. Now we're going to get to that last verse in a second. Because I like a better interpretation of that that I'm going to uh, talk, tell you about. But... This mocking that, that they gave to Nehemiah didn't give him a, uh, a full blanket, you know, uh, carte blanche to just go after and attack these guys. This prayer is a very detailed prayer. Now, it reflects back to what Israel is going to, but it also ties very much into what Jesus says when he says, love your enemies. Remember what we read this morning, and, and you know, well, I was going to say Kevin read it, but I read it this morning. From Romans 12. It says it's like what? When you love your enemies, what is it like? Heaping coals on top of their head. Is that what we want to do? All right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to love my enemies so I can just watch them burn. No, that's not the motive that God is saying, right? Jesus isn't telling us to manipulate the situation. No, he's saying, look, when you heap the heaping coals is letting them know the wrong. It's, I believe, it's a conviction that they will experience when they see you loving them when they don't deserve it. And so Nehemiah, paralleling here back to Nehemiah, I believe he is doing the same thing. Let them see how we feel, Lord. But then right after that, what does he do? Verse six, so we built the wall. He just moves forward. How you handle the mocking is going to be everything. And one of the best things being out in the street 
Again, if you come out with us next Friday night to Point Pleasant when we go on the boardwalk to share our faith, you will hear and see people mocking. Okay, You will hear and see people laughing, cursing, and saying, you know, or coming up close, whispering things, foul language and things like that. And I love when that happens. I love it. Because it gives us the opportunity to show true Christian godly character. It, it also draws a great crowd, too. The more people mock, the more people stop and they, they listen and they're like, oh, what's going on here? This guy's screaming at this guy. Let's see what's going to happen. And then you have a big crowd and you can preach the gospel. But what ends up happening is, is when these people come at you and they rip you apart and you love them back, the people around see and they say, wow, you, you know, I can't believe how you handled that. I would have punched that guy right out if he did that or if he said that. And it gives us an opportunity to say, that's not the way. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to share the love of Christ. And the ultimate way to show the love of God is by loving your enemies. I think it's the ultimate way. Why? Because God showed us the ultimate way by loving his enemies, us. You and I are born into this world as enemies of God. Enemies. We are God, the Bible said, we're God haters. We don't want to be under God's authority because of our sin nature. But God looked at us and said, I love them. And I'm going, I don't want to, I would never follow God. That's ridiculous. I want control of my life. I don't want to be under some authority of some book written thousands of years ago by who knows who was probably changed. And I'll never follow the Lord. And then God grabs a hold of us. He shows us his his son on the cross, that he died for me. And all of a sudden, we're like, wow, I love God. (laughs) I hated God before, now I love God. How how did that happen? It happened by God's grace. So he gives us this this ultimate thing. We get to see what he went through at the cross for us, and it causes us to love. Now, Nehemiah also in this prayer He has a little bit of righteous indignation. I would definitely not count that out. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because anger is an emotion that God has as well. We read it in the Bible. It's anthropomorphic. In other words, it gives us an idea in, 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 in our way to understand it, what God is feeling. So he uses that sort of language. But righteous anger is what God has. Not sinful anger. And this is how Nehemiah responds. What exactly is righteous anger? Righteous anger is anger you have because of something that happened that angers God. So righteous anger is anger you have because it angers God. That's so important to see that. Now we can't go around saying, you know, Oh man, you left that, uh, you left your laundry laying around again. I'm going to kill you. It's righteous anger. That's a sin against God, right? That doesn't anger God, okay? It angers God that you're yelling at your child that way, maybe. But uh, I shouldn't judge like that because I have, I have four, so I know it can be very difficult. But it's injustice. What is that? Good being called evil and evil being called good. That should give us righteous anger. Because that angers God. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil in the book of Isaiah. I forget the address there. Good being called evil. Um, 
For me, righteous anger, crimes against children. I can't stand it. I, it, it, gets, it, it gets me, I, it can, if I don't control it, that's righteous anger because, you know what? These are children made in the image of God. Especially abortion. That angers me righteously. But I have no right to go down to the abortion clinic and start a fight with the clinic workers. I don't have any uh, right to go and fight with, with the women that are going in there and get them in a headlock and pull them out. But I do have a right to go to them and talk to them about that sin. See, that's the right response of righteous anger. And there's all these other things out there that we can go through that anger God. But the big banner, good being called evil and evil being called good. Now this, remember I said I was going to tell you about this translation of verse 5. So <clears throat> there's basically two major groups of manuscripts that we have our Bible from. And the differences are so minute that they never ever make a difference doctrinally or something that I'm talking like instead of you know, putting a dot here, the dot isn't there. Or this little word, this little word has a different little nuance than this word does. And so in verse five, it says, do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. But in the King James and in the new King James <clears throat> versus the NASB, which I'm reading out of, this is what it says. And I like this interpretation better it says, do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. You meaning God. And I think that fits so much better in the context of what this is all about, these, this passage. Because they're angering and sinning against God. And Nehemiah knows that and he is responding accordingly. And of course, they say, no forgiveness. Do not forgive their iniquity, Lord. Now, again, this isn't saying like, don't ever forgive them. Let them go to hell. What this is a reference to is these guys, remember, Sambalot and, and Tobiah were not allowed in the temple. Do you remember that? Because they were from the descendants of Moab and, the Am, and, you know, and Ammon. Okay, And so Lot's two children that he had with his daughters, which was a gross sin, and after that, they did not help Israel when they came out of, the, um, of Egypt. So God said, they'll never be allowed in the temple. They'll never be allowed to go get to make sacrifices. So they, ultimately, they have no way to ever get their sins forgiven in that context. And this is the same with us. There is no forgiveness of sin outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new temple. So if you have sin, if you have a guilty conscience, if you know you're a sinner and you're going other ways to try to make that happen, you're just like these guys. You're never going to get into the temple. You're never going to be able to get that ritual to, to get that sin covered. You have to come to the cross and let the blood of Christ cover your sin by faith, by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. That by confessing your mouth to the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's a true, true statement. God is separate from every other lowercase God out there in that he worked his way to us. We don't work our way to him. I don't care. You can give all the money you want. It's not going to forgive your sins. You can do all the good things that you want to do. You can help as many poor people as you want, and I applaud you for doing that. But in God's court, that doesn't satisfy the sin debt because your sin debt is eternal. 
Your sin debt is eternal. And only an eternal righteous God could remove the wrath and injustice of, of God. Because that's Jesus, fully God. He's the only one that can cancel our sin debt. So that's why we have to flee to him for forgiveness of sins and embrace onto him for that. <clears throat> now, righteous anger must not be peppered with sin or words of provocation. You see, notice, he didn't say, listen up, you know, God's going to return the reproach on your head. Your sins aren't going to be forgiven. No, he went to prayer. He went to God with these requests. And so we have to make sure that when we are angry, we do not sin. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Be angry, tells us. Be angry righteously and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. What's that mean? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. God doesn't want you to have a bad sleep. Hey, if you want to sleep good, make sure you ask everyone to you know, get rid of that anger. No, what happens is, is anger, uh, what, what, what ends up happening, it, it gets into and it roots itself into your heart and it turns to bitterness. And so when we don't get rid of that anger, if we let it stew and grow, it will cause a root of bitterness and it causes bondage. Listen, to, in Acts 8.23, you know, Peter said to Simon the magician, who was a Christian, apparently. He had accept, believed in Jesus Christ, but he was trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hey, can I pay you money so that when I lay hands on people, they'll speak in tongues and the cool things will happen? And, and, and he was like, you're, to, to, to paraphrase, you're a knucklehead for thinking that. But really what he said is, he goes, you are caught in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And so bondage and iniquity, uh, the, the bitterness, I believe, creates bondage here based upon the scripture. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, notice how he keeps clumps them together, and clamor, which is like crying out, you know, going on a rant, I guess you could say, be put away from you along with all malice, all ill will. Put it away. Put that bitterness and anger away. That's how, that's our, the biblical instruction of getting rid of anger. God says, okay, here's what you have to do. You know, dig into your past and no, put it away. Put the anger away. It's easier said than done. But again, God knows that when you take that action of putting it away, the Holy Spirit is going to work in you. So what are, how do we sin, and how do we have righteous anger and not sinful anger is look at the deeds of the flesh. What are they? When you get angry, are you doing these things? Listen, <clears throat> Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, Galatians 5, 19 to 20. When you get angry, are you doing any of these? The deeds of the flesh are evident, <clears throat> which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, and then here goes a little more into what we could maybe fall prey to uh, when we get angry, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and it goes on and on and on. 
But these are the things that you want to make sure of when you get angry. Now, if you're prone to this, then you need to take extra precaution. You need to be ready. You need to have that prayer card in your pocket and you need to pull it out. Not literally, but you know what I'm saying? You need to be ready. Don't just think, well, I'm going to deal with it when it happens. No, because you may get righteously angry at the things that anger God and then you'd start to sin in that anger and then you just knocked it all down. You've done nothing but cause grief to God and maybe even people, the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. Look at him. You're supposed to be a Christian and you're doing that. We've all heard that, right? So Nehemiah does respond with prayer. He responds in that prayer, obviously with an imprecatory prayer against them, but he does have righteous indignation, but he doesn't sin. How do we know that? Because he responds without being moved or discouraged. I love it. He just says, he, taught, he prayed to God and then the next verse, so we built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I believe I could just try to visualize the type of guy Nehemiah was. He was probably, in my opinion, the way that he's acting here was a very controlled. He had a control. He was he had a lot of temperance. He had self-control and he showed his people that he was under that control. He was not going to be swayed. He showed his people that he was the leader that God called him to be. He wasn't going to stir them up and say, guys, we're not going to let him talk to us like this. He's not an army general. See, that's a different context. But what did he do? He was poised. He was controlled. He prayed. He said, let's keep building. And they built the wall to half the height. He doesn't go for revenge. He stays focused on God. Romans 12, again, 19 to 20, which we read, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Why does he, what does he mean by leave room? See, in other words, the revenge you go out and try to take, you're ultimately limiting God in that situation. When he goes, he's not going to have room anymore to do it when you mess it up with your revenge and, and your works of the flesh and all that other stuff. Now we have to back up. He's going to deal with you. You're going to have to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. And that's always fun. So listen, vengeance is mine. Revenge shouldn't even be on our mind as Christians. It shouldn't be, I'm going to get him because he did that. It's only right. I mean, listen, he deserves that. She deserved that. Oh, no, no, that's revenge is not in our, we should not be there. We got to take it to the Lord. Again, entrusting our enemies to God. How Jesus says, love your enemies. And again, heaping coals isn't a manipulative way to, 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 to hurt them or to find a loophole in this whole thing. But it's a command to love so that they will see your kindness. They will see that conviction will burn in their heart. <clears throat> I love it that he doesn't turn back. You see, remember, he didn't build the wall. It's a halfway point. Halfway point. Now, when you're at the halfway point in anything, you're, you're just as close to finishing as you are to going back to the beginning. So Nehemiah could have easily turned around here. He actually started building, like it says, so we built the wall and it was joined together to half its height. So I'm not sure if it was already there halfway or after the insults they started to build, but either way, it was halfway done. 
And when they, when they dug up uh, uh, archaeological evidence shows us that the wall that he built really wasn't that great. It was what they were saying. So Nehemiah could have easily been discouraged. He could have turned away. He's as close to going back, but he didn't. He went forward. He didn't get discouraged. The people then had a mind and a heart to serve God despite the opposition from the enemy. Now, again, we see here this word in verse 7 I, I wanted to, to, uh, to make mention of. It says, uh, now verse 7 says, Now when Sambalot, excuse me, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry, and then they conspired to go to war. And that word repair is a very, has an interesting nuance to it. It means healed as, a, as, as, as flesh growing over a wound. So it's, it's like this picture of oh, these, these people that they're hating Nehemiah. You know, they are wounded by it. And now this flesh is getting building over it, repairing it. I just think there's a lot of little nuances there that the writer, that the Holy Spirit is, is showing us on just how angry and upset these people were. So he entrusted his enemies and opponents to God and he followed the original course. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do today. This should encourage, Nehemiah is such an encouraging book. I hope you guys are reading through it. I would encourage you to read through the whole book a couple of times as we do this study and really get a good flavor for this, for this guy because he's a super inspiring uh, person, even obviously for us. He responds when people and his enemies mock him and his opponents mock him. How does he respond? Prayer. He had righteous indignation. Why? Because they were offending God in his plan. And what does he finally do? He moves on without being discouraged. It's <clears throat> a couple of words from Jesus, okay? Who, who again, isn't some royal, you know, uh, 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 what do you call it, aristocratic sort of leader who came down and, you know, got on the throne right away and got all the chariots along with him, could have did that. Went down to the, the big, the, you know, the, the uh, um, whatever they call the Jewish, um, uh, uh, not synagogue training, but, you know, like a seminary. They go down there and they say, hey, I want the best 12 people you got. No, Jesus comes and we know the story. Comes as an infant without any place to stay. His parents are poor. He picks a bunch of riffraff as his followers. Fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, hangs around with ex-prostitutes and all the sinners. And guess what? He goes to the cross and he, more than anyone, could have had righteous indignation. And he did against the Pharisees many times. Remember, he, he flipped tables in the, in, the, in the temple. We got all those woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. But he does it because of the disrespect and the anger that God had because of what they were doing. And then he himself is the one that becomes mocked and spit on. Mark 10, 34, they will mock him, talking about the Son of Man. They will, Jesus is saying, talking about himself in the third person. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And in three days, he will, he will rise again. So Jesus was mocked and said what? Father, forgive them. 
That should be our default prayer. Father, forgive them. They, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing to you, Lord. They don't know what they're doing here. If they did, they wouldn't be doing it. If they truly knew the God of the universe, they would never be acting that way. But then Jesus gives us a promise in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So again, if you have never really heard the gospel, (laughs) and if you've never really heard about being a Christian, guess what? It's not everything the TV uh, tells you it is. It's really not your best life now, according to some of the teachers out there. It's really not, hey, I can just pray hard enough and believe enough and I'm going to get a a brand new Cadillac or whatever the case may be. It's not about prosperity. It's not about being happy. It's about glorifying God. Now, you you will be happy. You will have joy. God will always take care of you. But you will have enemies. And why? Because the enemy above all enemies that's behind all enemies of Christ, the Bible says, is Satan. Now, you may not. If you don't believe in him, then you're his best friend. If you overbelieve in him and you think he's literally doing every single thing and every little thing is a demon, then you're his best friend because neither of those two things are true. But he does have great influence. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that in 612, when we're struggling to be Christians, that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world uh, forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. These are heavy words. Dark, dark, dark forces are behind our enemies. But don't be afraid because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And we have overcome not only the enemy, but we've overcome the number one most powerful weapon of the enemy, death. We've overcome death in Christ. He rose from the dead. You will die, but you will be risen again. And you will be more alive then than you are now. You will look at this life and say you aren't even alive compared to the life that you're going to have. The, the Paul says that the glory that we're going to experience can't even be expressed, to paraphrase him. So that's what we have to look at, but we have to stay on course as we fight this battle. So I think with that, we will close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being on our side. Thank you for, for Nehemiah, Lord, and choosing to highlight his life for us, Lord, in this small little aspect of his life. Let us take from him, Lord, what you would, would like us to do. Lord, let us love our enemies. Let us not be uh, uh, rocked when we get mocked, <laughs> when, we get, uh, uh, when people curse at us or talk behind our back for being a Christian or maybe for trying to be holy or for trying to live a life pleasing to you. Let us love them and show them.